0: To another edition of the-
1: Mad Max Minute. We're glad you came to this audition and we look forward to what you have come to show us. But first, let's talk about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick.
2: And I'm Julia.
1: And today we're talking about Minute 13, which begins with Auntie monologuing to some sultry saxophone backing. And it ends with Max revealing that his fly swatter can kill more than flies. (laughs) Today, we are joined by the ever-deadly Molly Balin from the Cabin Minute cast. (laughs)
0: hey guys (laughs) welcome we're so glad you are joining us today i'm super stoked to be here i love this movie and i've got so much love for tina turner oh my god (laughs) even even more seeing this movie again so yeah i'm super stoked
1: and this time around you have the added benefit of actually having something going on the last time we had you on you and heidi your co-host for cabin minute cast we brought you in for minute 10 of road warrior which was more or less max putting the car in park (laughs) getting out so max is a lot more active this week
0: he sure is yeah he's he's quite agile this week and thoughtful. Thoughtful and agile. So it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been
1: up to since the last time we talked?
0: Well, we started Cabin Minute Cast, the minute-by-minute podcast about the cabin in the woods. And so we're probably, by the time this airs, we're going to be pretty close to wrapping that up entirely. So you've, you've got us at the the bookends, so to speak. So yeah, I've been doing, doing that. So Talking Monsters and tropes and lots of blood and it's been it's been really wonderful it's been a really great ride and it's been wow you know it's been a commitment so
1: (laughs) as we're recording this you and Heidi have just gotten to the part of the movie where the purge button has been hit yes and this next week coming up I know I'm destroying the illusion of when these episodes come out versus <laughs> when we record them but next week is all of the elevator doors opening and carnage and blood flying everywhere it's one of the most iconic and exciting parts of oh. the movie and I can't wait to listen.
0: Yes, yeah, this is this is where it all comes down. This is kind of what everyone's waiting for. This is the real, you know, the real horror main event so to speak. So yeah, we're we've waited through <laughs> 40 minutes of the movie more than that actually yeah because we're we're uh you know the the initial top half of it you you just get a lot of tease and then you know people start getting picked off and now we we up that pace so yeah the body count uh goes up dramatically at this point so yeah it's a, it's a good part to be in it's the the exciting part so yay
1: <laughs> yep i'm excited my favorite characters coming in the yellow murder bot oh yes <laughs> is gonna get his time to shine and of course the mermaid oh probably one of the more iconic monsters in that oh, movie. Oh
0: man, yeah, we had a we had a fun time with that. We had a well a little, you know, down the road there'll be, you know, discussions coming up. But yeah, that little that little guy's ugly. He really is. He's not uh <laughs> he's not the the hot mer people that we're accustomed to. He's no Ariel, shall we say. Um but uh he's got a he's got a sweet blowhole and um yeah, the costuming around that's pretty fascinating about how they decided to do that and um there's actually uh if you guys want to if you guys are fans of cabin in the woods and uh like cosplay and like costuming obviously this movie has got some some of the most phenomenal costuming you know i mean just really iconic beautiful beautiful stuff and and innovative so if you're if that's your jam yeah you should go on youtube and and check out some making of of cabin in the woods they've got some good good monster makeup stuff on there
1: but in the meantime we are back in with Max. He is in Auntie's penthouse and she has just at the tail end of last week instructed her saxophone player, Tuntun, Tun, to play something tragic. <laughs> and so the first couple of seconds of this minute is Tuntun Tun leaning in and starting to play.
0: Yeah. So have you guys talked about? much saxophone i mean because 80s saxophone was such a big thing and we just really don't get saxophone like that like that's that was such an iconic instrument in my understanding of that decade you know like a kenny g had a you know a a, a, what do you call a soprano sax and you know this is i know it's like post-apocalyptic but Um, did you guys ever, like, play any type of saxophone in school? It just feels like this is the the sound of the 80s and we just don't even hear it anymore.
2: I was never a sax player, and and honestly, I'm not a particular sax fan either. It's fine, it's just not something I seek out. (laughs) But, (laughs) I do think that I have to credit the 80s sax Craze leading up to the infamous Bill Clinton playing saxophone on Arsenio mm, Hall, right? Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Largely, well, maybe largely, it's a strong, but partly crediting 80s sax with helping to get him elected. Mm, wow. If we hadn't recently come off this craze of 80s saxophone, would that scene of Bill Clinton have made such an impression on the United
0: States? I don't think so. I think you're kind of blowing my mind right now. I think you've really completely recontextualized a whole presidency for me in this moment. <laughs> <laughs> like, holy crap, you just laid down some like heavy political commentary. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, though. It really made him look cool. You're right. And and he was very attractive to, to young voters, I think, as a result of that, that, you know, we take it somewhat for granted now. I mean, with, you know, Barack Obama, I think even when he was on, you know, comedians and cars getting coffee, where that. I'm like holy crap like the president did a tv show like a comedic tv show and i think when clinton did it it was just such an edgy thing at the time i think you're really onto something there that you know garnering that that youthful vote that he's he's a cool dude he'll be a cool president
2: yeah thinking of the presidents prior to him we had bush and reagan <laughs> and well carter yep. was before reagan okay they were older <laughs> <laughs> and might be called stodgy. And Bill Clinton comes in playing saxophone and he's just completely different. And I think the country was ready for something completely mm-hmm. different.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting that we're we're drawing parallels to what cool leadership looks like. And I think that's kind of part of the, the casting here with Tina Turner is that this is a, a vibrant, vital... Sexy. I mean, she's all rock and roll. She's in chain mail. She's strong. She's cultured in this very non-cultured space, I guess you could say, non-civilized space. I mean, she actually has like a water bottle here with like chain mail attached to it. So even there's aesthetics in, in the water, you know, in this, this desert environment. So I feel like this is all of these accoutrements we're seeing in this minute are speaking of a bygone time, right? She's got fruit. You're growing fruit. Fruit in a desert. Oh my God! So there's a sense of <laughs> yeah. There's a sense of, of of affluence there. You know, you've got music, right? Who can afford to find and, and upkeep music in this area? Where I mean, even here, where there's bartering. You know, so there's a, a kind of a show of where there, these things that we've lost or they've lost in the culture she's been able to to bring back here. Mm. Look, there's fresh water on hand. There's fruit on hand for you.
1: Yeah. When we were talking about Tun Tun playing this saxophone last week, we bounced back a lot to the first Mad Max movie Mm. where Jesse's instrument of choice was a saxophone. Mm. And I think out of all the different types of instruments you can find out in the world... A good brass instrument, granted any instrument you take good care of can survive for a long time, Mm -hmm. but a good brass instrument would probably require a less dedicated amount of upkeep than, say, a $2,000 violin Mm -hmm. or something like that. No, Mm -hmm. that's fair. Yeah.
2: What's the little piece of wood that has to go in the mouthpiece? Oh, the reed. The reed. Yeah, those might be a lot harder to come by, Mm -hmm. and if your reed is in quality and in good condition then you're not going to get a good sound
1: mm. Whereas it's just a little bit of wood though
2: you might be able to yeah. make them
1: you might find someone who's coming to barter town with a load of wood from like a salvage wrecked house somewhere and somehow find a craftsman <laughs> i think that's the major obstacle in a lot of these situations mm. you got to find the right kind of craftsman yep and auntie is in that position where she can find that kind of person because everybody flocks to Bartertown.
0: right right yeah and and to be true um reeds you really do have to soften them up to be able to play them so i played clarinet i wanted to play saxophone my parents hated the sound of the sax in the 80s therefore <laughs> i got the clarinet because that's obviously a so much more of a gentle sound to have playing poorly in a home by a child but right <laughs> Uh, You got to use a reed no matter what. And so the the reeds are, are similar size. And so you do have to put them in your mouth and soften them up for quite a while before you can actually put it on the instrument. So they're pretty hard and pretty resilient. So I can see that if you were able to get to a music shop, you know, and considering this very dry, dusty climate, they would probably survive pretty okay, Presuming you can get a hold of some.
1: Right. At the end of this past minute Auntie instructed Tuntun to play something tragic. And what I did as I was watching this minute is I closed my eyes and I tried to focus past all of the dialogue (laughs) just on the saxophone music. And... I didn't recognize it as any sort of piece of music that existed before this. It probably was improvised or something like that. Mm-hmm. But as I sat there with my non-classically trained ears, and I'm the farthest thing from a music critic, but it definitely felt you know, mournful and a little self-pitying, mm. taking that prompt that auntie gave him and turning it into these musical strains. Mm. It's the impression I get, at least.
0: hmm yeah. Yeah. It's it's an interesting choice. Why do you think why do you think it's something tragic? Why do you think it's something sad?
2: I think Auntie is accentuating the tragedy of Max's story. Mm. She doesn't know much of his story, just that he was a cop and now he's nobody. She said once cock of the walk, now just a feather duster. Mm. So, I think she's accentuating and maybe poking fun or jabbing at him with this tragic music. Mm-hmm. I think Perhaps it's more sarcastic than anything else.
0: Mm, Gotcha. Yeah, interesting.
2: (laughs) Yeah, which I think is a power play on her part. I think she wants to accentuate his status as a nobody and her status as a somebody so that she can continue this interview on what she wants him to do.
1: Hmm. And it's a good observation because before the collapse, Max was somebody. He Mm -hmm. was a cop. He was a driver. And as Auntie walks around Max and goes over to the pitcher of water and bowl of fruit, she goes a little bit into her backstory. She basically says that before the collapse, she was nobody. She was just an ordinary person. But on the day after, she was alive. She was not one of the ones that had died. And so she turned her fortune around, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of backstory here that we just don't get. Mm-hmm. But what I interpret her statement of, you know, saying that she was nobody, I feel like it's unlikely that she was any sort of public official like Labatouche or Fifi McAfee back in the first movie. Mm. I was trying to nail down what I think the best backstory for her would be. And honestly, I actually found it really difficult because I wanted the narrative that I thought up in my head to fit into the character that she eventually becomes as Auntie. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple of different ideas. The first one... I thought she would be a really good nightclub manager. Yeah. That way she is actively involved with the music scene. She's using that natural charisma and leadership that she has. Maybe she was the owner of a place like the Sugartown Cabaret. You know, a lively place that even though the world is falling around, people still flock to it. It would more or less fulfill the idea of her being a nobody. Mm. But at the same time, if you're like the leader of a business, you're still more or less somebody in the community. So I'm... Not like super sold on that one. The next one I thought up was that maybe she could have been a personal assistant in a corporate setting, like mm. close enough to learn all of the ins and outs and develop skills for working with pompous and self-important people. Mm-hmm. Like if she worked at Seven Sisters Petroleum for someone like Papagallo. Mm. She learned the ins and outs of dealing with Men who think that they can go out into the desert and deliver a group of people from a bunch of marauders, but at the end of the day, they're just, you know, a bunch of blowhards that can't deliver.
0: Yeah, I, I think I, I would subscribe to to uh, option number three. And I find that, <laughs> no, seriously, I, I I feel like that resonates with me because I feel like this is a very interesting... This is a very interesting comment because she doesn't give you backstory because she doesn't find it to be important. She finds what's important is I was nobody and now I'm somebody. So what's interesting to me is that Max is living out of a trauma. You know he he happens to have the skills in which we're going to see here in these next you know couple of minutes to survive in this new world, but she didn't she wasn't on top of the heap in the last world so history doesn't mean anything to her this world is one she carved in this is the one that she ended up really making something of herself quote unquote too so i find it interesting that his backstory is meaningful and hers really isn't she's just dumped it it's not you know, it, even her rise. She doesn't even talk about like. Then I did this, and this is. And then this happened, and then I, I became this person, and then I had these experiences. It's not even important to her. And we're going to see later on in the movie another group of people. Not to ruin things, where where history and mythology is very paramount to them. So they're living kind of in an in, in Eden, so to speak, and don't really know it. But these guys, she's made her own Eden, but it's this kind of bastardized version of where they came from. So I find it interesting that there's like a dueling background history in this moment. And it makes sense to me that she was somebody who who was probably marginalized to some degree in the previous world. But here she's somehow turned things around for herself to be in the top of the heap.
2: A parallel that I drew for really no other reason that both properties are Australian, is I thought about Prisoner Cell Block H. Mm. It doesn't seem to be marketed as a soap opera, but after having watched... Quite a bit Over a hundred episodes It's a soap opera <laughs> So it's an Australian soap opera About inmates at a women's prison And I can absolutely see This character of Auntie Being top dog In Prisoner Cell Block H mm-hmm. She would be a put down part of society Nobody thinks about the prisoners And if there was an apocalypse Right now The last group of people That anybody would consider Is the prisoners mm-hmm everybody would be so concerned about themselves and making sure their family is okay, the prisoners are going to be forgotten. Right. So I can absolutely see her... Turns out she survived when many of the other prisoners did not, and taking those experiences of taking leadership for yourself, even if nobody wants to give it to you, and you have to look out for yourself because nobody else is going to, taking those experiences and building up a community, a civilization, as she says later on, out of those skills.
1: Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That idea of people trapped in prisons after an apocalypse, it reminds me, do you remember Stephen King's The Stand?
0: Mm, yes.
1: One of the lieutenants for the big bad in that book. Is, Pyro, right? I don't remember who he was, I but remember I remember name, he was- I
2: think that was his He was
1: played type. by a guy who I recognized from one of the Hot Shots movies. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> vagaries on vagaries- Left and right, as far as who these people are, but it basically sets up that this guy is locked up in a prison. Most of the world's population have died because of a viral outbreak or something like that. And so the big bad of that series walks into the prison and lets this guy go in exchange for his loyalty and whatnot. Mm everyone, it's Rick in the editing booth. I can't leave well enough alone knowing that I couldn't remember this actor's name. So the guy I was thinking of was Miguel Ferrer, and he played the character of Lloyd henried He was locked in prison, and the big bad of that movie, Randall Flagg, came and got him out of prison. The Hot Shots movie I had in mind was Hot Shots Part Deux, and in that movie, Miguel Ferrer played Harbinger. He had this great line, War. It's fantastic. Definitely go check it out. But anyway, back to the episode. And so you can imagine that there are probably a lot of really good stories in this Mad Max setting of people who were locked up. Mm -hmm. Molly, I like the point that you brought up that Auntie's past is not important to her because every time we've talked about Auntie before this point, I've been itching and just craving a story or movie or comic series or something Mm. chronicling Auntie's rise to power how she went from being that nobody to making a somebody of herself. Like, I want that story more so than, like, a Furiosa movie.
0: hmm Yeah. Agreed.
1: Because I feel like everybody really looks down on this movie as less than. mm And there are so many good elements to that that I feel like it doesn't deserve all that hate.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. I, you know, I 100% agree with you. And And before I went into, you know, doing the research on this, I always had... Of all the movies, this one was the one that I loved the most. Even Counting Fury Road, which is a masterpiece, this is the one that I loved the most of the four. And I feel like this got it all right. And I know that people have given it a lot of slack, like you're saying. People hate the, you know, and, and not to ruin things, but there's going to be a group of people they're going to come across, you know, mm, you know, an hour into this movie. And so it, it really shifts hard. And I think even the, the arrangement of the writing, you know, once... You go through the whole movie is very counterintuitive. It's not classically what we would expect. We would not classically expect to start out with this scene, considering what happens over the course of the movie but I feel like this one is the most cogent and even even you know the the sentimental aspects of it on the the latter half of it really don't bother me I think they're quirky enough that they just kind of cover up that sin if someone was going to make you know a complaint that it's 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 softer than the previous two but I feel like it has it has more of a story Um, it's it's rich in layering and I I feel like people really just give it too hard of a time I think it's really the the best of the series so just saying
1: (laughs) if people want to get Angry at the third movie in a series, they can watch Robocop 3.
0: <laughs> can I get that on a t shirt? <laughs> Legit. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but you're right. This is a really strange series in terms of likability. You know, I mean, it's it's almost like Terminator in that you're like, oh, wow, you know, the first one is good, but the second one is magnificent, you know, so you almost feel like it's out of the, the goodness is slightly out of proportion, what we, we normally expect. I mean, good God, I just watched Jurassic World against my wishes recently, because I was like, I know what this is. <laughs> I know you're going to go, you're going to bring some dinosaurs in. They're going to, you know, you're going to misunderstand how to keep them. They're going to eat everybody. It's going to happen again. You guys just keep doing it. It's like making Home Alone again. So, you know, I understand where you're just like, you just keep pumping it out. It gets to be, you know, like Rocky or whatever. But, you know, this is such a strange series because it is just so creative. It's like in, it's in they're like indie movies, you know, and, and of the time, this is so interesting that, you know, in, in the mid 80s, you've got like Back to the Future and you've got Indiana Jones and, you know, you've got Lost Boys and there's all of those elements in this, but it's not a, a domestic production, you know, speaking of the US domestic productions. Mm hmm. So it's a little bit, you know, a little bit of quirk, but yeah, I'm I'm you know, I will uh I'll take anybody the mat who says that this is the poorest of the series seriously. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so much for history. <laughs> so Auntie offers Max water and fruit. She's got the water hanging up in that little chainmail pitcher. She's got the fruit sitting there on a bowl, and she picks up an apple herself and Max cautiously steps towards Auntie and reaches towards the bowl. I like that Max is very untrusting of the situation. Mm -hmm. He's been very aware of what's around him ever since he got off that elevator that they rode up in almost taking mental stock of exactly where everybody is in this room and what they're doing and what they have. And even now in this instance where he's being shown some hospitality, (laughs)
0: like
1: he knows this is not the kind of thing that you experience in the (laughs) wasteland. People don't just (laughs) offer other people food and water. Mm -hmm. Something has got to be up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the next shot we see is behind Max as he reached down and we look up at Auntie and she has this piece of fruit in her hand and she takes a bite out of it. And I'm not quite sure sure how to like describe the way that she bites out of this fruit
2: <laughs> she bites out of this fruit like it's a signal for someone to attack mm-hmm. yeah yep which is exactly i think the directing and the acting in that very moment isn't great mm. it's just so obvious that it's a signal mm-hmm. that no wonder max Saw it coming and was prepared. hmm It just could have been more subtle. It could
0: have been, yeah. Yeah, I think this is a really good moment because before he, you know, gets up to this point and he's trying to get in the door you know, track down the pilot, you know, he's basically like, look, I, I, I have skills, I don't have anything to bring in physicality, but I am the skills. And so I feel like this is, you know, it's that showcase of he's learned, he either had a lot of these before he walked into, you know, this post-apocalyptic situation that he's found himself in for whatever the last two decades, but he's also honed them and being there. And this is, these are all those characteristics that are ingrained in him in terms of skill. He has an awareness of surroundings, he has the ability to to be agile be quick they made a comment about him being quick so he's in literally you know dodging an arrow here and you know (laughs) and he has the capacity that his awareness of his surroundings are are good enough that he understands how to use basic things as weapons like he uses like a i guess you would call this a platter that he ends up (laughs) you know, tossing across the, tossing, I don't know, like a, like Captain America style with his shield to take somebody out, pushing down on a table to take out another couple of, of combatants, so to speak. So he's got, you know, quite a bit of, of capacity just in him. So, which is a part of, you know, it's, you know, it's the, it's the trope of the plot, but also to show Auntie that he's capable, but this is also just like who he is as a person. These are the, the qualities that, He's developed and, and are now ingrained for him to survive.
1: I think one of the major drawbacks to this fight scene is that the guards, Iron Bar, and the Collector included, they only attack one at a time mm-hmm. when there's... It's literally a four against one fight. <laughs> and despite Auntie's enthusiastic signal for them to fight, they don't all rush him at once. I mean, the most we see is Iron Bar raising his fist threateningly with his, I guess... <laughs> It looks like a Brookstone meat tenderizer (laughs) that you get out of the masculine kitchen section, you know? (laughs) They have those gadgets that are specifically tuned for guys so they can feel, you know, masculine in the kitchen. (laughs) But Max is so attuned to any change in that room that Iron Bar just makes this little shifting sound with his equipment. And so Max, his spider senses start tingling, and he, instead of grabbing a piece of fruit, takes that platter that we were talking about, and he flings it across the room. And I, admittedly, was unaware of Max's throwing disc skills. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if the MFP officers and the local fire brigade back before the collapse, maybe they had weekend fundraisers where they all played ultimate Frisbee (laughs) or something like that. But I was unaware of this particular skill that Max had.
0: Yeah, it's quite impressive, actually. I mean, you know, I I appreciate because I suck at ultimate frisbee. I just suck at frisbee if I can <laughs> if I can get it to just move. So I think to to be able to, to do this on command is impressive enough as it is, you know?
1: Iron Bar certainly isn't any better because he completely misses the opportunity to catch the platter and takes it right to I want to say either the upper chest or throat.
2: Mhm. My guess would be the upper chest. If he took it to the throat, I can't imagine him getting right back up to continue the fight. Mm. Although Iron Bar throughout this movie does prove himself to be rather impervious to
0: injury
1: <laughs> Yeah, he's very resilient <laughs>
0: he's kind of bouncy yeah yeah
1: after max takes out iron bar you mentioned another one of the guards he steps forward and he has a wrist mounted crossbow which i always appreciate seeing the old hits brought out in new contexts <laughs> we saw so many wrist mounted crossbows it's nice to see that they're still in wide use <laughs> even in the third movie <laughs>
0: Well, when you find something that works really well, you know?
1: Yeah. It probably would have been good if the guy using the crossbow had the ability to shoot it effectively.
2: <laughs> well, he effectively destroyed an instrument. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and he narrowly got max.
2: I was wondering about the destruction of the saxophone. Considering that saxophones are probably pretty hard to come by, I wonder if someone's going to be punished for the destruction of this mm-hmm. one.
1: Yeah. I actually wonder if it's destroyed beyond repair because it's a fairly small hole and it seems to be at the end of the horn.
2: So you think it can be repaired?
1: I'm wondering With the
2: technology that they currently have?
1: I wonder if they can take like a little ball-peen hammer and like go inside the horn and just kind of tap out the bent bits.
2: You'd have to Uh, weld it back together
1: too. mm -hmm. Yeah, like a little little patch weld. And that might, well, it it would definitely alter the resonance of the horn. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be perfect.
2: Do you think they have welding technology? Now welding requires fuel.
1: Right. I think MacGyver once did a spot weld using a nickel and a couple of jumper cables attached to a car battery. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Now, granted, that was an episode of MacGyver. So it's not rock solid science. (laughs) Right. But
2: the car battery is the fuel. He would eventually use it up.
1: Yeah. So if you can patch some sort of welding system through the power generated by Barter Town, you could probably get a good welding workshop together. The trouble is getting all of the necessary parts to make that melting and fusing reaction.
2: Right. And the skill to do it. Yeah. So it's much more likely that they would be able to repair
0: it in this movie as opposed to Road Warrior.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right.
0: Yeah. And they do have the benefit of, you know, a pretty decent electricity infrastructure. So it's possible that they do have, and and it's a bartering hub, you know, maybe somebody's got some propane laying around, you know, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. How do you, I mean, do you use an acetylene torch for something like that? I'm not sure. But they do have to repair vehicles. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, so they must have some, you know, leftover mechanism
1: to do that. I do feel kind of bad for Tun Tun, though, because he wasn't necessarily involved in the attack. (laughs) I mean, sure, he's more or less part of the set dressing, but he wasn't actively attacking Max. He was just sitting there playing saxophone and then someone shoots his instrument. It's all... It's unfortunate.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you think about it, that instrument is his livelihood. Mm-hmm. That's his job. And if he can no longer fulfill that job, what's going to happen to him?
1: Maybe he's really good at whistling. <laughs> he better hope so (laughs) or or they'll find a harmonica somewhere he can just blues it out that way
0: yeah maybe he can play drums or something they can find something else for him but yeah no it's it's a little bit sad to think that maybe his whole his whole meaning is really wrapped up in being a saxophone player his whole identity and that's just really just been ruined you know there's a whole this was his inciting incident to to have a you know like a five-year depression you know i was a saxophone player in the apocalypse and now no more you know?
1: What happens to the guard that shot the wrist-mounted crossbow is at one point awesome, but at the other point just so silly, because Max grabs the wrist with the crossbow, he put his other hand on the guard's belt, and he flips him up over his head, down onto the ground, hitting the end of the little table that was holding the fruit. There's a second guard at the other end of that table, so as the first guard slams down, the table flips up like a lever, and it smacks the other guard in the face, and it is so three stooges that not even tina turner can believe what she's <laughs> seeing because auntie especially at the tail end of the shot has this look on her face of just pure disbelief as if to say a i can't believe max just threw my guard like that and b i can't believe my guard just stood there and took a table to the face
0: yeah i feel like that's shocking to her on a couple of levels <laughs> one it <laughs> I mean, this is just kind of crazy mayhem, and this is all—you know—it's all of her stuff. So I, I, I think she expected, you know, some sort of tussle to occur because obviously this has happened a few times. But uh, yeah, I think uh, <laughs> the way in which it happened—it happens—is is rather shocking to her. And I love this expression on her face yeah. and the, the shot here of her like being a little slightly off to the the right hand side, being I mean, like, "What." just like wrecking everything
1: (laughs) that expression on her face of shock is definitely what my face looked like when we got to the next shot where the collector comes in from the side with this giant battle axe that looks straight out of some sort of viking movie and he swings it down at max I wonder where did he get the axe? Why does he think he should be involved in this fight? Because Max doesn't even take a full step back. It's a half step back. The axe goes down between Max's feet and the collector just sits there with the axe embedded in the floor looking up at Max and then oh, he steps to the side of the axe, kicks the handle and the handle goes right up into the crotch of the collector Mm. and we get the shot that really (laughs) I didn't necessarily ever want to see. I never wanted to see Frank Thring's more or less O face. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, but
1: it's it, I, I just, oh, yeah. I just didn't need that.
0: <laughs> it is magical, though.
1: <laughs> it serves him right for thinking he can tango with the big boys. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. He doesn't. Um, he doesn't appear to be a gentleman who would carry a battle axe, nor should he wield it.
1: No, he looks like the kind of gentleman that would complain about a battle axe referring to a wife back at home. (laughs) He he looks like the kind of guy who would use that type of verbiage. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm, Yeah. (laughs) Amazing.
1: Yeah, his entry and subsequent exit from this fight is very quick. Yeah. Someone that re-enters the fight though is Iron Bar. Coming back once again, he slips a noose around Max's neck and then pulls it tight. And this is, this tool goes by several different names. It's a catch pole or a control pole, depending on who you ask. I was trying to figure out where this device originated, and I really couldn't find a ton of information. The one thing that actually gave me dates and whatnot is from the Catch-All Company. That's catch with a K and an E hmm. as opposed to a C and an A, but they started manufacturing these things back in 1952, and with how simple it is, I expected it to be a lot older, hmm. because it's literally just a rope through a tube.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, this looks like something that you would use to, to try and grab animals, And control animals, Mm -hmm. basically.
1: And typically, that's exactly what they're used for. I don't want to go too far into the product description of the the catch-all company control pole because they're not sponsoring us (laughs) and I'm not giving out too much free advertising more than I already have. But yeah, it's basically you slip it around the neck of an animal, large or small, and it gives you an element of control without having to get too close. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Which is exactly what Iron Bar is fine with because... Max has some height on oh. him, to say the least. <laughs> and Iron Bar wastes no time in cinching that noose about as tight as he can get and he wraps the cord around his hand so it just doesn't slip out. And the look that Max gives Ironbar as he does that slow turn to look around at him. <laughs> that is not the kind of look that you want to see coming from someone that you're on the other end of a pole from. No. Because he's been able to sneak a finger underneath that line so it's not tight up against his neck. Max still has not a modicum of control. And Ironbar just looks so proud of himself mm-hmm. for looping Max in like this. <laughs> But that expression quickly changes because Max puts his flyswatter in his mouth, pulls on the handle, and there's a knife in the handle. And Iron Bar's expression drops; <laughs> his eyes go wide.
0: Like meh. <laughs>
2: I'm kind of surprised that he has such a reaction. Earlier in the movie, we see both the Collector and Iron Bar. They've sensed something in Max. Something that he is dangerous, that he is someone to be taken seriously. And that is what has driven them to bring him to the penthouse. So... Why are they surprised that he has a hidden blade?
1: I wonder if they're more surprised at themselves for not taking the opportunity of patting Max down at the weapon check window because he put all these weapons down and then he stood there with his hands out being like, check me. And they didn't.
2: Well, even if they had, they wouldn't have found it. He was holding the fly swatter in his hand the whole time. Mm. It was there. He holds it in his mouth when he can't hold it in his hand. It was
0: there for everybody to see. Yeah, Mm.
1: That's the brilliance Mm of it. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Absolutely.
0: Hidden in plain sight
1: yeah so max is able to slip the end of that blade underneath the rope and in the last moments of this minute he cuts the cord and he's free and that's where this minute ends so we get to see tomorrow how max is going to react to iron bars aggression (laughs) in using the catch pole and it might go well for him it might not go well for him you know we'll, we'll see in the meantime molly where can people find more of you on the internet uh, you can check us
0: out at cabinminutecast.com, dot com, where we have uh, all of our our episodes up. And you know, you can go to Apple Podcasts and and download. But you know, sometimes that that brings brings fear to people. So if you want to, just go to the website and uh, click on an episode and and check it out. And um, yeah, see how that see how that treats you. But yeah, we're on uh, Instagram and Twitter and. And Facebook, although I got mixed feelings about Facebook right now in general as a as a company, <laughs> um, given the the latest news. But um, yeah, uh, we're all uh, with the handle Cabin Minute Cast.
1: Sounds good. Definitely check all that stuff out. By this time, I'm pretty sure Cabin Minute Cast is at least near completion or nearing completion. Go back to episode one and just start listening because as good as that movie is, the podcast just adds so many more Yay. layers. So definitely check it <laughs> Thank out. Thank you
0: guys so much. Appreciate it.
1: Yep, and we'll be back on Wednesday with more Mad Max stuff. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
2: Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers.
1: Join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link.
2: Thank you for joining us for Minute 13 of Beyond Thunderdome. See you next time.